The following is a conversation with Professor Enzo Palumbo. Enzo is a professor of microbiology in Swinburne University. He is a chair at Swinburne's Department of Chemistry and Biotechnology. His interests rely in microbiology, food safety, and infectious diseases. I hope you enjoy this conversation, and I thank you always for listening. Professor Enzo Palumbo, is that correct? That is perfect. I'd like to thank you for joining me on the podcast. It does mean a lot to me, especially when I get to speak to someone such as yourself, a professional in your field. Um, I know time is of the essence as someone like yourself, so it does mean a lot to me that someone like yourself would sit sit here with me today to discuss infectious diseases. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Dale. How did you get started in something like infectious diseases? It's a bit of a strange subject, so it's not something I can imagine you would think about doing in your even early teenage years. So. It wasn't necessarily infectious diseases that was my first sort of foray into science. It was more around understanding things like um, genetics and bacteria, how DNA operates. And as a young high school student, I remember thinking, oh, one day I want to learn how to make DNA, what makes DNA tick and how, how it does what it does. And as I evolved and became a, a university student, I sort of migrated towards the interest in, in things like bacteria, which are a really good model to understand how genes and other genetic material operate. And for my PhD, I studied certain parts of the, the genome of bacteria called plasmids. And plasmids, for those who don't know, are small bits of DNA that exist outside the chromosome. But they give the bacteria certain characteristics. For example, antimicrobial drug resistance is often linked to the plasmids that are present in the cell. And by studying that, I then emerged, evolved into studying other types of bacteria that were involved in infectious diseases. So that was almost like microbiology. People think about microbiology, they think about infections. So naturally, you gravitate towards the bacteria that cause infections. Then when I moved to my, sort of became an independent scientist, I worked, I worked in areas where um, the infectious diseases were more viruses and things like that. So it's, it's almost like a, a journey of, serendipity, what you sort of initially find yourself working on, but infectious diseases became a, a sort of a focus in, in later studies. Does DNA have its own self-defense mechanism against things that may want to change it, if that makes sense? Uh, yeah, well, not the DNA itself, but the cell has various enzymes that when DNA is altered, whether that's by biological means, because when DNA replicates, it does make mistakes, nothing's perfect in biology, or insults like radiation or chemicals that change the DNA structure, the cells can bring into play mechanisms that repair the DNA. That, that way, those changes are not inherited by the next generation of cells. If DNA doesn't, say, want to change, it just does, as, as you said, it's not perfect. No. Are there ever times where the DNA does want to change because of something interfering with it? I don't know if we can give... DNA human characteristics of wanting mm. to do something. It's just the nature of biology. Nothing in biology is perfect. Mm. There are mistakes made, and the process of replicating DNA, in other words, when we copy DNA from strand to strand as cells divide, mistakes are made. They're random. And what is happening is selection on the DNA or on the cell is causing certain types of cells to become the dominant ones or the preferred ones. If you go back to sort of the, you know, the Darwin theory of evolution, natural selection is what's happening there. The DNA is changing because it's, it's just a changeable molecule. It's the selection pressure on 
that molecule which makes it inherited. So it doesn't want to change, but by its nature it does change. If those changes benefit the cell, then they are selected for by whatever environmental pressures are there. Now these cells, they also have their own DNA. Is that RNA? They have RNA, yes. What is RNA? Okay, so DNA is the, think of it as the, the book that has the instructions. RNA is another molecule that reads the instructions and then tells other parts of the cell what to do with those instructions. And those other parts of the cell are what we call the ribosomes, and they make protein. So the DNA message is taken by the RNA to the ribosomes, and then the ribosomes read that message and do what they need to do. When I think of bacteria, I think of things that are going to harm me. Mm. But bacteria now, as you said before, we don't want to think of something as having a human characteristic Mm. and Mm. it wants to do this and it wants to do that. But a bacteria, when it quote-unquote infects us, it doesn't really necessarily, now I use the term mean, because I feel like it's the only word I can find here, to harm us because I think... It's trying to find a healthy host. Correct. If it means, quote unquote, to harm us or not, it seems counterintuitive mm. because I can't see why something would want to that infect a healthy host to just then kill the healthy host. No, it- that's true. That's very true. The old adage in microbiology is a bacterium's role in life is to make two bacterium, in other words, to grow and divide. How it does that depends on the type of organism. Some do it happily out in the environment, in, on plants, in water, in soil, on animals. Others find the human host as the preferred environment. So when they infect us, their job is simply to make more of themselves. How they do that is by competition, because we have other microbes on our body, in our gut, and other parts of our, of our normal system that are our, our normal, what we call microbiota. They're our normal residents. And they don't want to give up their space to something which is invading them. So these infectious things make compounds and other chemicals which try to fight against the normal microbiota and sort of take over and and become the dominant species just to grow and divide. But back to your point about you don't want to kill the host. That's very, very important because the best pathogens are the ones that don't kill the host. They might make them sick but they then go on to the next host and continue. If you wipe out your, all your hosts, you've got nowhere to live, and mm. you also die as a species. So when people think about these really terrible things like Ebola and those types of really nasty viruses, if they worked as well as they did and killed off all their hosts, they'd wipe themselves out because they need the host to survive. The best pathogens are the ones that give you a bit of illness, maybe some effect of, of their infection, but then don't kill you, and you then spread the disease to other people. So you act as a vehicle for the transmission. Well, we have uh, bacteria on our skin, mm. and they just, you know, do the daily thing. Yep. You know, they live, they live happily on our skin. They, but as soon as we get a cut, yep, and they enter our cut, that's where things get a bit nasty. That's right. So, why is it that they live so happily on our skin and take care of us, but then as soon as they enter a wound, they tend to go a bit dirty on they us? They go rogue. Yeah, yeah, yeah a bit yeah. rogue. And and that's. That's because that skin environment is the natural environment which has co-evolved with the, with the host and the, the passenger, if you want to call it that. Mm. The bloodstream and internal tissues are meant to be sterile. They don't want microbes in there. So yes, a cut and abrasion is an entry point for those microbes to get into your other parts of your, bo- your body. We call these opportunistic infections. 
They don't want to make you sick, but given the opportunity, they can. Same with things that cause infections in, in, in the gut or other bacteria in the gut normally, like our friend E. coli, which we often hear about. Mm. It lives in our gut nice and happily. But again, if you get it into other parts of your body, it can give you things like um, a urinary tract infection, UTI, or into your skin can give you an abscess, or into your bloodstream can give you a very nasty septic infection. So when they're in their normal environment, they're happy. But given the opportunity, in another environment, they can make you quite sick. I watched a documentary very recently, especially because I had a conversation coming up with you Mm -hmm. on mosquitoes. Mm. After watching that documentary, I look at mosquitoes very, very, very differently. The infection that mosquitoes could spread throughout Australia is very different to, say, Nigeria, Africa. So Nigeria, Africa have very wild cases of malaria. Mm, That's right. Whereas I think here it's mainly wild Nile. Uh, West Nile. Uh, West Nile. Uh, that's that... more North America now. That's and, more North America. I think uh, no, it has, hasn't quite come to Australia. Okay. But there are some other mosquito-borne infections we may have heard about, things like Ross River fever, yeah. Murray Valley encephalitis, mm. um, Japanese encephalitis now is also breaching. And that's partly to do with the climate because mosquitoes are very sensitive to things like temperature, humidity, and so on. And as we have climate changing, we have the tropics expanding, and therefore mosquitoes... Are spreading also in their environment. So all those factors, we've had a very wet couple of years, the mosquito population are breeding, all those factors are leading to potentially these diseases carried by mosquitoes spreading more widely in our environment. There's not, unfortunately, really much we can do about mosquitoes. We have wire doors, uh, mm-hmm. window window frames to stay inside, but once we go outside, there's not really much. we got things like AeroGuard, but personally, I don't think it really does a lot. There was something we had a long time ago i can't remember what it was called anymore i think it was like back in the 80s not dtt yeah 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 why was that discontinued right um i have to go back into back into my memory about i wasn't around those days but it was used as a insecticide um but it also was found to be quite a a, a toxic chemical and from from what i've read about it it was one thing that tended to accumulate in biological systems so even though it was a great insecticide it killed the mosquitoes, it was um, it was, it, what's called bioaccumulated. So if people were exposed, or animals were exposed to it, they would take it in and then manifest in their tissue and amplify and, and, and accumulate. The next person, if you ate that piece of fish or whatever it might have been, in the, in the food chain, it would, it would sort of increase. And when it got to humans, it then became quite deadly or toxic or caused problems for people, so it was discontinued. But it was a very good insecticide, but wasn't very good for humans. Our main counteraction towards infections is antibiotics. Alexander Fleming, I think his name was, he invented penicillin wrong. through the... Wrong? Wrong. Yes, this is a, a, a very poorly understood history lesson. Alexander Fleming discovered the fungus that penicillin eventually came from. Mm-hmm. But he was a, a doctor, he wasn't a chemist, he wasn't a biochemist. It was actually an Australian Wow. An Australian person called Howard Florey from Adelaide who went to work at Oxford. His team got the penicillin fungus from Fleming and were able to extract the penicillin as a pure compound. So it wasn't Fleming, it was Florey and his team that discovered penicillin. Fleming discovered the fungus, Florey discovered the, the penicillin. So who got the award for it? <laughs> it was shared. The Nobel Prize oh, was shared, shared between Florey, one of his colleagues, and Fleming. So Aussies don't know that the discovery of penicillin was done by an Australian. 
Howard Flora used to be on our $50 note, I think, one of those banknotes. I'm suddenly very proud to be in Australia. Yes, yes. <laughs> Sir um, Howard Flory. So he was knighted for his work. Wow. And in fact, when you think back over the history of what there's, a, there's some great documentaries on this if you get a chance to watch them. It was all about the war because they wanted penicillin to be used as a drug to treat infections. Most Before penicillin was invented or discovered, most soldiers died not from their wounds but from their infections of their wounds. So most soldiers didn't die from their battle wounds directly. It was the infections that happened afterwards. Once they discovered penicillin, and the first time it was used in combat was in D-Day, the Allied soldiers were able to then recover and go back and fight. So it helped their armies stay healthy. So penicillin and blood plasma were used during the war. The war effort may drive those technologies. What is an infection? An infection is a situation where an outside organism, we call them pathogens, take over an organ or a body part or even systemic, they go through the whole bloodstream. And typically they produce compounds like toxins which cause damage. And damage can be directed to the tissue or can lead to things like diarrhea or other, other undesirable outcomes. And typically the infection is a, a, a poor health state caused by that pathogen infecting you. And most people recover. Others might be a bit more vulnerable. That's why we used to use antibiotics and other drugs to help help overcome the infection. So the, the role of the, of the drugs is to kill directly or even stop the infection from spreading and therefore the body's own immune system can take over and, and clear it up. Alexander Fleming, his worry was the overuse and over yes. of yes. penicillin, which I'm seeing a lot today, not with just penicillin, but with all antibiotics. And we have a worry now of antibiotic resistance with even the most common infections. Correct. If today's antibiotics are so, well, they're still effective, but they're becoming less effective as time goes on. They're saying by, I think, 2050, the amount of uh, antibiotics that could be effective would dwindle down to the handful. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's the that's a big. It's probably one of the biggest concerns in health and medicine. So why aren't we funding the pursuit of medicines that could help in the future? So let's just say penicillin was a fungi. I think most medicines that we have are plant based. Why aren't we funding more of this? Money. It's it's simple um, economics. If you're a drug company and you produce a blockbuster drug, you want people to use that every day for the rest of their lives. Think of the statins for high blood pressure and heart disease and those sort of drugs. They're used by people who have a condition every day of their lives. Antibiotics are used for a short period. You get sick, you go to the chemist, the doctor, the chemist, you get a drug, you use it for a week and you're better. That's not economically viable for drug companies. They want lifelong drugs that are more about you know, people, you know, obesity, heart disease, cancer, those sort of things. Antibiotics just don't make money for the drug companies. Simple as that. Yes, but people make money for the drug companies and if infections start wiping out people, they're going to have no money anyway. We understand that as scientists and as the medical profession understands it. And as you said, by 2050, more people will die of antimicrobial drug-resistant bacteria than die of cancer today. But we, it's like climate change. We think about it's tomorrow's problem. 
We don't think about we need to address this now to stop the problems in the future. So we do a lot of research. A lot of people like me do research on discovering new compounds from plants, from other natural sources, from from the environment, from soil. And yeah, we do the research, but where's the the next step to take it into into development as a, as a as a drug, as a, as a compound to use in the clinic? That's the problem. So you're saying that drug companies and governments won't really worry about it until basically the time comes. I hope not. And there's been a lot of noise made by WHO, United Nations, all those big bodies to say we need to address this problem now because we can't wait 20 or 30 years. It's a, it's a today problem. Many people die today from antimicrobial drug-resistant bacteria. There was some study done, I think, either last year or the year before. They compared things like the E. coli's of the world, the things that cause infections like that, and they estimated that the ones that are causing the normal infection and death are the, the normal type of E. coli, say, for example. That number is multiplied because you have the drug-resistant versions that you can't treat. So if we were able to cut back on those infections and be able to treat them, the mortality rates would drop immediately today. Even today, 2050 is a long way away, but today it's a problem. Tuberculosis is another example. Tuberculosis was almost eradicated or controlled at least around the world with a reasonably good vaccine and some pretty good drugs. Now we have a problem called MDR-TB, multiple drug resistant TB, which pretty much doesn't get affected by any of the common drugs. There might be one or two left that still work. Then there's what's called XDR-TB, extremely drug resistant TB. Those particular bacteria cannot be treated. There are no drugs that can treat that form of TB, tuberculosis. If you catch that, you're done. You're done. Well, not everybody responds differently to the infection, but if you can't treat the infection, if you if you end up with uh, an active case of tuberculosis and you can't be treated, you will die. I was watching or listening to this other documentary. It was some case in India where you could start off with just an infection, but something will protect that infection, kind of gives it a shield. I'm trying to remember NB... Oh, NDM? Yeah, NDM. Yeah, NDM stands for New Delhi something. It's a, particular, it's a particular mutation in these bacteria that gives them the ability to counteract some of the common antibiotics. Carbapenemins, they're called. They're a type of antibiotic, a bit like penicillin. Now bacteria have evolved a way to break down that drug, and it's because of these type of NDM and other mutations that occur. So it was first sort of noticed in, big, in a big way in India. And people can get that bacterium when they ingest food or water, drink water, and it gets into their gut. And they can carry that bacterium with them back to their other parts of the world. There have been cases of people who've travelled to Thailand, Vietnam, eaten or been exposed to bacteria like these in that part of the world, come back to Australia with the infection or with the organism in their gut, and then they can get infected and or it becomes a, a, a proper acute infection and they, they can die from those infections. So we are the carriers of those bacteria from other parts of the world. And that can take, just say, a normal infection that can be treated with, just say, antibiotic, practically. It would have been, yeah. But then it would take it to that, end, what was it, NDM, did NDM, you say? NDM, the NDM. Once that uh, latches on to this bacteria, that basically limits your antibiotics you can use to yes, correct. very small correct. amounts. It's not, it's not, the NDM is actually made by the bacteria. The mutation, oh. 
allows the bacteria to make a, a compound that breaks down the drug. Wow. And that's, that's common for other types of things like um, golden staph and so on. Golden staff's very scary. Yeah. Now that is a hospital-borne disease? Typically, yes. Typically, it's something you get when if you go to hospital and, say, a wound becomes infected or some other thing happens. But there also are community cases of, it, of um, MRSA or golden staff. Do you get that through the oxygenation masks that people usually put on? The respirators? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if that happens in that particular situation. I think it's mostly, from what I understand, mostly wound infections or, or mm. breaks in the skin mm-hmm. and so on. People touch bad hygiene and so on. Our first line of defense is really our immune system. Correct. Today kind of worries me because I think today we are more overweight and more unhealthy than we've ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, people aren't getting enough vitamin D, enough vitamin C, enough vitamin A. How can we use these three components to help? Like, how do they help our immune system? I know vitamin A is meant to help with um, our white blood cells inflammation response, which can then help fight infections yeah yeah i'm I'm not going to go too far into immunology it's not my specialty Mm -hmm. Um, but the 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 take-home is really a healthy well-balanced diet Mm. will give you all those vitamins and nutrients that you need to maintain a healthy immune system i think the jury's out about whether taking supplements is actually any benefit certainly vitamin d is a different thing if you have a deficiency that's important because vitamin D has other health benefits in terms of your bone health and so on. Most of the other ones like vitamin C are water soluble. So you, you probably are making very expensive urine. You know, yes, that's, that's one of the, actually. One, again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical person. But most no. of the things I've read about supplements are really overkill in our society where we have good quality food, vegetables, that sort of stuff. Mm. Well, yeah. I think you might be right on that because I used to take a men's multivitamin. Oh, yeah? Okay. Now I was already I was already intaking plenty of fruit, plenty of vegetables, but it was just kind of in my head. You're yeah. probably not getting enough. Yeah. yeah. And I found probably an hour after I'd take it, I'd be pissing bright yellow. Yep. Yeah. Even though yeah. I'd be taking in a lot of water. Yep. Yeah. And I just think to myself, am I just taking this just to piss it out, really? Uh, I think that's they're promoted as if you, if a small amount of something is good, a, a huge amount must be better. Hmm. But again, most of those vitamins are not absorbed by the body. Vitamin A is, might be a fat-soluble one because it does get absorbed. But even then, too much of it is not good for you. No, it's not. Um, so, again, if you look at the literature around diet and vitamins and nutrients and all that sort of thing, most people just recommend a good, balanced, diverse diet with lots of colour. You know, the colours in things like vegetables indicate that they've got bioactive compounds like vitamins, like nutrients, like fibre. The more colour you have in your diet, the better it is for you and, again, for your immune system. So, yeah, health just being a healthy, healthy eater is good for your immune system and it can help you minimise things like infections. I think something people are failing to realise when it comes to taking antibiotics is what it does to our gut microbiome. Oh, for sure. The gut microbiome is coming into more of a conversation today. Yep. But a lot of people don't realise why they still feel so shit after taking antibiotics and that's because... It doesn't just kill the bad bacteria it kills the good bacteria right. in your gut it's like taking a nuclear weapon to, to solve a, a minor problem yeah in a skirmish mm. they're not selective as much as they should be so they are yeah they're not targeted they they will pretty much knock out most things 
the problem with antibiotics, and we had this conversation about fungi before we started, in our microbiome, we tend to think of it only as bacteria. There are also yeast and fungi in our microbiome. Now, most of the time, there's a balance between all those different things, and we, we have a very good, diverse microbiome, healthy situation. If you do anything to disrupt that, it's called dysbiosis. You take away certain members of the, of the microbiome and others overtake, then you can get into problems. Now, antibiotics do not kill fungi, do not kill viruses. They only kill bacteria. So knock out your bacteria in your microbiome, your yeast, your fungi, and other things can, can multiply and take, take over. over. Then you get things like thrush and yeast other infections. diseases which are caused by yeast infections. And again, it goes back to that conversation we had before. These things aren't there to do harm, but if given the opportunity, they can take over and cause harm. So by taking antibiotics, you are disrupting the normal balance and throwing things that should be there out and other things take over and can cause harm. Can a very diverse gut microbiome, so I, I like to have kombucha tea. Yep. I like to have uh, plain Greek yogurt. Yep. I don't take that inner health plus stuff. I just don't think it's necessary. Yep. I just think as long as I'm getting things, uh, consuming things that are helping my gut microbiome, can we use our gut microbiome to fight infection? Uh, not to... F- I'll say to fight the infection, but infection is a, pr- a process. Mm-hmm. The first part of the process is the thing that wants to invade you has to be able to colonize and then take over. The general thinking is that the gut microbiome, think of the gut as a sort of a, a surface. That surface is covered by things like mucus and our microbiome. Then you've got the cells that are part of the, the gut tissue. If you remove those things, then the the invader has a better chance to get through all that and, and infect you. But by having those things there, it, it creates like a, a normal protection for, for your gut. Sure, probiotics and things like yogurt are, are fantastic foods, and partly that is because they are fermented foods, and fermentation, the acid, is also good for you. Some of them have known to have good effects. Lactic acid bacteria, we call them. They are very good for you. Whether they are going to be the panacea to everything the jury's against still out. People who consume naturally fermented foods tend to be healthier, but they might be because they're just an, a healthier individual and that's part of their normal healthy lifestyle. Taking commercial probiotics, I think the jury's still out about whether they do anything really tangible to the gut. The mycologist that I had on my podcast, it was really funny. He was telling me how, so when a fruit drops and hits the ground and over time it starts building this yeast on yep, it. Yep, yep. And he was telling me how monkeys will actually use this to get drunk yep. and change their consciousness. And I found this absolutely yeah, hilarious. Yeah. And that's probably how we discovered how to make alcohol. We yeah. observed animals consuming this rotted fruit. Mm. But you know, once we then discovered that, oh, the, the liquid, the juices in there make you pretty happy, <laughs> we discovered <laughs> alcoholic drinks. And then we discovered that you could take that material and put it into fresh, say, grape juice, mm. and it would ferment and become wine. Mm. Um, then we discovered how to use that same thing to make bread, leavened bread. And that's evolved into what we now have this whole industry around fermentation. You had a study or a published study on endophytic fungi. Mm. Could you tell me a little bit, a bit more about endophytic yeah, fungi? Yeah. Fascinating creatures. They are fungi that live, endo means inside, mm-hmm. and phyto means plant. So these are fungi that live inside the tissue of plants. Not the surface, but inside, between the cells. Why they are there is still debated. 
but it's believed to be that they, again, a bit like our microbiome, they provide some assistance to the plant to help maybe metabolize certain chemicals. They also produce antimicrobial compounds that may help fight the diseases. That you know, Plants can't run away. If they're exposed to an insult or a, a problem, they've got to fight back. Mm-hmm. They can make their own chemicals or they can use these endophytic fungi to produce chemicals that help them. So there's probably a natural symbiosis between the fungus and the plant. What's been discovered, though, some of the chemicals that we nat- no- normally thought of as being made by plants, some of the, say, anti-cancer drugs, other valuable compounds, are also made by the fungus. So we can now take the fungus from the plant tissue, grow it in the laboratory, and take make those compounds in the lab rather than having to chop down all these trees. So it's seen as a sustainable way of making useful compounds for things like medicine, biotechnology, and so on. What's the research in medicine uh, using endophytic fungi, how can we use that to yeah. help? Yeah, well, as an example, the first one that was really made the, the headlines was a thing called um, Taxol. Now, Taxol is a drug that was made by stripping away the bark of a particular tree called the Pacific U. Um, it's called Taxus something, or the tree's called Taxus, that's why it's called Taxol, the drug. But the chemical is from the, the bark of the tree. To make, uh, I'm just making up numbers, you know, make up one gram of chemical to kill 100 trees. Not sustainable. Great drug was used for ovarian cancers, a whole lot of different cancers. Then somebody discovered inside the taxus plant was living one of these fungi. It also made the compound taxol. So rather than having to harvest it from the trees, you grew the fungus in the lab, purified the compound, and you got your anti-cancer drug. Wow. And it saved all these trees and made the drug much, much easier and cheaper to produce. Wow. There's another fungus, I'm not sure if you've heard of it, uh, turkey tail. Is that the common name? It's a mushroom. Okay. It's a, called the turkey tail mushroom. Paul Stamets. Oh, yes. Yep, I know Paul. Uh, yeah. He did a talk. His mother uh, had breast cancer. Right. One of her breasts right. was, during this talk, he was describing how it was five times larger than the other breast. Gee. They went to go see the doctor. Doctor said, you should have came seen me two years ago. But the doctor ended up saying, have you heard of this thing called turkey tail? She said, yeah, my son's been talking about it. So she ended up doing, and I'm not telling people this will work for you. This mm-hmm. is just something mm-hmm. that worked for her. She went on a trial with, uh, with turkey tail while she was on, while she was doing something else. And out of the 50 people who were on that trial, she was the only one who took turkey tail. And I think 48 people died. And she was the only one using turkey tail and she survived mm-hmm. and went into remission. Amazing. And she was that far into work. And it fascinates me why we don't put more research into fungi and plant-based medicines. It does fascinate me why we don't do that. Yeah. We, we always try and go to the, the chemical side. Yeah, yeah. If you look at the, all the drugs that are currently commercially available, mm. about half have come from natural sources. But there's a place for, and one of the new areas of science is using AI to identify drug targets and chemicals that can then be used for things like cancer treatment. So it's, it's probably a bit of a balance. You, you can use natural sources. You can use that as a guide to what might be um, a useful drug and then maybe modify those in the laboratory using you know, chemi- chemistry or going directly for the synthetic route and say, we'll just make libraries of compounds randomly and see what, what, what works. But using AI helps you identify which one might, might be more likely to work. So it's, it's a balance between those two d- different areas. The synthetic route is probably in some ways better because it's more reliable, probably more cost effective. And if I'm a cynical, it probably can be more patentable than a natural mm. product. So mm. people look, go down that route. 
is one less dangerous than the other in terms of so if i was to take a fungi compared to a pharmaceutical created drug yep is one less harmful to the body than the other i, I don't know if there's evidence of that if mm. you took the drug from the natural source and then synthesized that in the lab it's the same chemical it probably doesn't make a difference having said that in the natural world and i'm going to sort of go into a bit of basic chemistry i'm not a chemist but i understand this concept all of the compounds in things like um, sugars amino acids come in two forms they're mirror forms and the body uses one form better than the other form in the natural world there tends to be a, a bias towards one of those forms in the lab we can make both forms equally now some of the, the other forms may just be just as effective and probably some of even better, more effective as a, as a drug so being able to do some something in the laboratory sometimes may be beneficial compared to the natural form which doesn't have that sort of diversity i heard a quote as long as there's dirty water we'll all be fighting infections <laughs> <laughs> well yes yeah um there's a there's a whole literature around what they call the hygiene hypothesis have you heard of that no i haven't it's, heard it's of that. this idea that as we become too hygienic we've become less healthy is that because our immune systems don't have anything to... Yeah, that's the yeah. idea that we don't get triggered to make mm. an immune response to the natural world as much mm. as we used to in the old days. And there, there is some history there that shows it to be somewhat true. Polio is an example where it's believed that the, because of the... After World War II, when we sort of became more industrialised, westernised parts of the world, we were cleaner. The homes were cleaner. We, we, we didn't go out in the dirt as much and play and so on. And then we had these outbreaks of polio around many Western countries, Europe, USA, Australia. And there was a link there between being too clean and these polio outbreaks. And the sort of the thinking was, in the old days, you would, you would be exposed to polio as a young child because you're playing in the dirt or playing in the water. But at that time, you had protection from your mother's maternal antibodies. So when you're born, you don't have any antibodies. You, you need to be exposed to things to make antibodies but your mum has made antibodies. Is that why they do that skin on skin? Yeah, that's part of it, to, to colonise you with your mother's good bacteria. Mm. So when you're born, you, you don't have any, you're what's called immune naive. You don't have any exposure to the, immune, to the outside world, so you, you're vulnerable. But your mother has made antibodies during her life. Some of the antibodies are transmitted to you via the placenta. Others are transmitted to you when you have breast milk. And it's believed that having these maternal antibodies protected you from your polio exposure when you were very young. Now, as we delayed our exposure to the outside world, so you kept babies nice and clean inside the house and didn't let them go out and play, and kids weren't allowed to play in the dirt anymore, your first exposure to polio may have been much later in life when you didn't have those antibodies left from your mother anymore, and then you were vulnerable to infection. Mm. Then we had these outbreaks of polio, and there's the history. So, yeah, sometimes being too clean can be detrimental. There's such a fine line there. I mean, recently, um, we went through COVID recently. And that was devastating to people in our economy. I, th I think it killed over 6.5 million people. And numbers still Yeah, still numbers, going. numbers are still going yeah. up. Yeah. But in saying that, so if I was, just say personally, was to never expose my immune system to the outside world and then I was exposed to COVID, it probably would have affected me a lot worse than just say if i were to expose my immune system to other pathogens yeah. first yeah 
I think COVID is such a new disease that we're still learning a lot about it. Mm. And there's been a lot of study on people, they call them the Novids, the ones who've never had COVID. <laughs> and trying I've to understand why, why they have resisted infection now, is it just their normal constitution? Have they just been lucky? Genes? Or they're protected because they've taken precautions? We don't know. But I remember early on reading about some studies that showed if you had had a common cold, and the common cold is caused by other coronaviruses, been around for a long time it's some idea that if you had been exposed to other coronaviruses in your previous colds and things there might have been some cross protection against COVID-19 don't know if that's been shown to be absolute so yeah your your own immune history can sometimes be a good thing to protect you from new diseases depending how close they are to the other things that have been around Mm. a totally new disease probably not I personally think that we we were underprepared for COVID and it surprised me because we've had so many world threat diseases, I guess you could say, to not be prepared for another one was quite surprising. I mean, we, we've had we've had the plague, influenza. We had Ebola outbreaks. Ebola we had outbreaks. What's that other one that sort of tears away? Uh, they call it... Oh, the flesh-eating bacteria. It was kind of, what do they call it? Uh, the big wig term got uh, defined from it. What's it called? Uh, I was looking at photos of it. It's quite horrific. Uh, you Is see, it still around? I think historical? so. It's more... It's more so... Oh, smallpox um, is smallpox? No, not smallpox. Syphilis. Oh, okay, Syphilis. okay, yeah. I was looking yeah. at photos for that and that yep. was horrific. Yeah. That's, yep. I don't know why they say leprosy is the thing that eats, a, eats away at flesh. Nah. Yeah, to, when, when syphilis becomes, it starts off with it's what's called primary, then secondary, then tertiary. Mm. And I guess to the secondary and tertiary stages, you're pretty, you're pretty gone. Mm. And it eats away your bone and your tissue. It's, it's nasty. It sends nasty. people insane too. Yeah. Yeah. Historically, a lot of people would have probably died of syphilis. A lot of famous people. Mm. There's some rumours that Henry VIII probably died of syphilis. And, wow. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been around for a long time. We do have drugs against it. Mm. There are some pretty good antibiotics. But, again, it's it's changing. Gonorrhea, a similar thing, another ST, STI. Mm. It's becoming much more resistant to antibiotics. It's a concern. Where were we going with the discussion about um, oh no! What I was saying was how it surprised me how underprepared we were. Oh, for sorry, COVID, yeah, considering yeah, yeah. how much we've gone through. Yeah, yeah. I've read this book, which is a fascinating history of what we call pandemic preparedness. Mm-hmm. George W. Bush read about the influenza great pandemic from the nineteen eighteen nineteen, and he got terrified, and he said we must build up America's preparedness for 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 the next pandemic. So. When was he president? Early two uh, thousands. Early two thousands. Yeah. I think Barack Obama became president in two thousand eight. Yeah. Yeah. Then Obama came into power, and for whatever reason, that that group, which was part of part of, I think it was part of Washington, sort of inner sanctum, Pentagon sort of stuff, was sort of whittled down a bit. Mm. And then when Trump came in, I think he got rid of all those. So that when COVID struck, all the work that had been done over the last few decades to prepare us for the pandemic had disappeared. And, we, and you're right, we weren't prepared. The American system is a bit different because it's very much a state-based health system. There wasn't any national sort of coming together like we did here in Australia. But yeah, you're right. I think in general, we are not prepared. Even now, I, I get the sense that we think it's all done and dusted, that we've survived the pandemic, we're fine. I just read the other day, there's a big outbreak of what's called Marburg virus. I don't know if what, you heard of that one. No, what's that? It's a cousin of Ebola. Oh, Jesus. And Ebola has a death rate of around 50%. I thought it was higher. De- depends on the outbreak. It can be as high as 90%, but the average is around 30, 40, 
Marburg has about 88% mortality rate. Does it affect the human body similar to Ebola? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's the same as sort of that just eats away all your tissue and, and turns you into a little a bag, of, a bag of juice. Jeez. And there's an outbreak happening now in Africa. It's never been seen in Africa before. Ebola is in Africa, but Marburg was discovered in, in Europe. Now, how it got there, why it's there, what's caused the outbreak, I haven't read much about it yet. But I just heard there was a, there was a current outbreak that the WHA is pretty concerned about. Is this disease roughly the same age as Ebola in terms of um, discoveries? Probably. There was a sort of a spate of these, um, what they call, uh, the group of, the, of, the, sort of those viruses discovered around the Ebola time. Mm. There was Marburg, there was another couple from other parts of the world. I'm only asking because if Marburg is the cu- cousin, as you say, of Ebola, yeah. I'm wondering if Marburg is kind of a... Um, so if we discovered a way to kind of not treat Ebola but kind of prevent it a bit, maybe yeah. Marburg is a split-off version of Ebola to sort of get around that. Yeah, true, true. And, and there are vaccines against Ebola now, which mm. we don't know if they work against Marburg. I I'm, not, I'm not a specialist in that, in that area. But potentially that could be used to treat... Like we, well, like we used... Um, with the monkeypox outbreak that's been oh, right. going around now, smallpox vaccine was used against monkeypox because mm. they're very similar to each other. That's like when we had the swine flu here. I think mm. it was back in 2009-10. Yep. I actually caught that. Did you? Um, I was probably only sick for a couple of days. Um, yep. I didn't really know that I had it. I just kind of felt like I had just a bit of a flu, whereas other people, like my older brother, he caught it too. He went right. to the hospital. Right, right. So catching things from... Animals, basically, yeah, yeah, is yeah. interesting because I don't really understand how the transfer works. We have a complete different DNA onset to them. Mm. So how does that yeah. transfer work? Yeah. And you, you bring up the bird, uh, the swine flu. There's currently a big outbreak of bird flu globally. It's killed millions of birds. And occasionally the bird flu does cross over or spill over, as we call it, into humans. Is that through mosquitoes? No, no, direct from animals. Wow. With flu... And you said, you know, we're, we're different. We have different, we're different animals. And we've learned a lot about this through the coronavirus mm. pandemic. But flu is an interesting disease. And if we've got time to explain how, how it gets into humans. So there are human flus, there are animal flus, and there are bird flus. And they are different. And they usually stick within their own species. Some species of animals can be infected by flu from different hosts. And the classic one in flu is the pig. The pig can be infected by, obviously, pig flu, can also get infected by human flu, and more importantly, by bird flus. When they're in the pig, when the virus is replicating, as we call it, multiplying and growing, usually if there's multiple infections by by different virus, you'll get the next generation will be, again, human flu, animal flu, and the bird flu. Sometimes they mix. They chop and change their, their, their genome around. And a new version can come out, which has some characteristics of the bird, some of the animal, and some of the human. And if that particular one is able to get back into humans, it can then cause an infection. And that's what we think happened with coronavirus. It came from some animal source, we believe. There are theories, conspiracy theories about a bat, the lab yeah. source. But it came from possibly originally from bats. And bats carry a huge amount of viruses. Mm-hmm. Bats have are almost like nature's own library of virus and reservoir of virus. So it got from the bat somehow into some animal, which then it evolved further to be able to get into humans. It's sequential evolution. Mm. Bats are fascinating creatures. The only mammals that can fly, and because they fly, 
It produces lots of those um, what are called reactive oxygen species, which are bad for your body. So bats make a lot of antioxidants and cope with that. They also believe that causes them to be able to resist infections much stronger than other mammals. So they can hold and harbour any different viruses and not get sick, but can transfer them to other animals and maybe even people. Well, it's like waterborne diseases. A lot of people think waterborne diseases just come from dirty water. Mm. Whereas after reading your research into as just swimming pools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's crazy that it's we can... People pooing in the water. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a lot. A lot of the time is just hygiene. And it's not even them literally pooing in the water. It's just tiny fecal droplets yeah, yeah, that yeah, are yeah, yeah, yeah. seeping into the pool and yeah. you won't even notice it. Yeah, and a lot of those, some of those pathogens are quite tolerant of chlorine. So mm. public swimming pools can become contaminated mm. by accidents. Well, we use, what is it, chlorine and bromine? Yep, yep. Those are the two things. It's halogen type yeah, things, yeah, 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 yeah. Now, if if these things and certain filtration systems that we're using aren't really working mm. against certain pathogens, what are our options? So obviously, it's summertime. Yeah, I want to go for a swim. Yeah. What are the precautions you can take? <sighs> Again, hygiene. It's recommended that people shower before they go into the pool, for example. Mm. With kids, particularly, wear swim nappies. So if they do have an accident, you don't get pool over yeah, the water. Yeah, yeah. It's just, again, it's common sense and hygiene. Mm. We did a, a, a study around some of those splash parks that are around Melbourne and a lot of parts of the, of the country now. And they tend to be unregulated, so you, you don't really have you know, people monitoring them very... Mm. They just use normal potable water. Some of them jump in with Band-Aids on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And we found lots of potentially nasty microbes in those waters. Yeah, mm. so, yeah, the world's not sterile. Uh, don't, I don't mean I don't want people to be paranoid about no, it. No, no, I'm not trying to say to people, "Hey, look, people are doing this. Don't go into the pool." Yeah, yeah. yeah. If it's hot, go in the pool. Yeah, you know. But don't guess, don't don't take a mouthful. No, no, <laughs> don't go swallowing the water. But is there a way of contraction? People are walking around bare feet around swimming pools. Is there a way of contraction contracting pathogens through that way? Oh, yeah. Potentially, if you had a cut. An abrasion, mm. yeah, you could potentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if it's ever been documented. We talked about Golden Staff before. Yeah. Uh, and again, the community acquired That's version scary. of that could be through just those sort of natural abrasions mm. and breaks in the skin. There was a story of a little girl in the United States. This was years ago. Kids like to pick at their scabs. Yeah. She developed <laughs> yeah. a Golden Staff yeah. infection just through picking her scab. I think. She ended up developing another infection while she was in hospital because it was through the oxygen ventilation that uh, she was breathing through. She got another infection through that. Okay. She ended up becoming better. I can't remember how, but don't pick your scab, man. <laughs> let, let it heal. Yeah. And, and hospitals, I mean, hospitals are a, an environment where there's a lot of bugs around. Yeah. You know, I mean, people spread them from you know, patient to patient, patient to staff, visitors to staff. A lot of hospitals now have been, even before COVID, introduced little, you know, hand sanitizers mm. as you walk into the ward or and they do a great the, the hands are the most common way of transferring disease around like I said picking your scab mm. dirty fingernails I mean how many times a day do they say humans touch their face oh hundreds possibly yeah yeah, and that's yeah. probably the best way to yeah yeah transmit infection if and, and even small things like food I mean I'm, I do a lot of work in food mm. um, safety and one of the most common things you say to people just wash your hands when you're mm. handling food, wash your hands. Don't cross-contaminate things. Mm. Be careful of what you touch in your kitchen and when you handle your food and, and whatever. Hand hygiene is the most important thing. 
I don't think I've ever seen the use of hand sanitizer so much in my life over the <laughs> over the last three years. Jesus. Yeah, um, yeah. But the other worry is I've heard hand sanitizer can actually really secrete the good bacteria that's on your hands. As well, well, yeah. It's again, it's a bit like the antibiotic. It, it, it's not selective. It doesn't mm. just target COVID. It, it targets mm. everything. But typically, a, a bit of hand sanitizer on your skin. Most bacteria have extra layers on their their surface, mm. and will probably be somewhat degraded by the uh, the ethanol. But viruses like coronavirus have that the envelope, which you may have heard about. That that it's a it's a layer on the outside, which is a fat layer mm. that gets dissolved by things like alcohol and ethanol. So it probably hits the, the viruses much quicker and better than the bacteria. And most of the things on our skin are colonised quite deeply and, and are part of our normal... Just washing your hands doesn't get rid of them as easily as the ones that are what we call transient, just sort of hopping for a ride. They can wash off pretty easily. My wife, she... Um, we had our firstborn baby about two and a half weeks ago. Oh, congratulations. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you're still... You're awake. Yeah, I'm still awake. No, he actually... Well, the last podcast that I did, I only got three hours sleep that night. <laughs> But nah, he sleeps really good now. He'll wake up once during the middle of the night for a feed and a change, but he'll yep. just go right back to sleep. He's been really good lately. Right, but right. during the birth, what I was noticing, or even after the birth, is every two seconds I was noticing the same nurse, just hand sanitizer, hand sanitizer. And that's why I kind of bring it up mm. about killing that good bacteria. The amount of times people in the hospital must use hand sanitizer yeah. Yeah. compared to a generic person who might use it once in a day. Yeah, probably. yeah look, I imagine it's one of the, those occupational things that, Mm. But they have to be cautious because they're around vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. You know, the mother, the child, they're vulnerable. Mm. So I think they take those precautions knowing that, mm. yeah, your skin is going to eventually be recolonized by those bacteria. Mm. And you're, not, you're not nuking your whole body, for example. Is there like a time process it takes for the good bacteria to reform? So if, if you've <sighs> just taken a cycle of uh, antibiotics and then you're saying to yourself, okay, I've just taken antibiotics, I better start drinking some kombucha and taking... Yeah. Yogurt, or even yeah. taking Inner Health Plus for those. I, I'm only referring to a couple of studies I've seen where they monitor the microbiome over time, and they take weekly fecal samples and look at the microbiome, and, and from birth to say four years of age, and just monitor how it changes. And you see some of the changes where they've taken an antibiotic, and it quickly shifts the microbiome to a different population, but it rebounds quite quickly. It could, would be you know, within weeks. Mm. So yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's a definitive answer for every situation but in, in that study that i've seen it rebounds quite quickly back to normal and there is that i'm not sure if this is for the gut microbiome but there's like a fecal transfer mm. where they actually take uh the microbiome from the fecal matter and put it inside yep. other people yep. is that for specifically gut microbiome health uh it is for particularly certain type of infection that is known as c difficile I'm not sure if you've heard it no. c diff is often referred to it's a nasty infection that happens when people are particularly hospitalized, when they do take antibiotics. I mentioned earlier that yeast survive the antibiotics. Certain bacteria also can survive because they make special cells called spores, which are like fungal spores. So the spores, are they literally how it sounds? They're little spikes sort of coming out? Not spikes, they're little round structures, but they're essentially inert, mostly inert structures that are very tolerant to things like heat, acid, temperature, all the things that kill normal bacteria, okay. these spores survive. Mm-hmm. And they can survive for centuries. They can survive for a long, long time. Anthrax is an example. Anthrax bacteria make spores. Spore gets in the soil. It can stay there for years and years and years. 
something happens, like a, an event where someone, an animal eats that particular soil sample or whatever, the spores germinate in their gut and cause the outbreak of anthrax. So that's the diversion. Seed diff is a similar type of organism that makes these spores in your gut. You take antibiotics, you knock out all the other things, these spores then multiply and become the dominant form. In that situation, they destroy your gut. They make these nasty things called toxins and it causes a huge amount of damage to, to the gut. Many people can't get back to normal after that. They, the, 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 the bacterium persists for a long, long time. What has been found though, is if you take the microbiome from a good person, from a healthy person, doesn't have the disease, and transplant it into the people with the, the disease, it will repopulate the gut with the normal good microbes and therefore the, the situation is, is restored. Some people call it repopulate your gut. Um, and, it, and it seems to work in that, in that particular case. So it's not going to be used as a routine thing, but in certain clinical situations, it's been found to be quite effective. I feel like an Australian came up with that. It must have been, yeah. And, and now the, the, the blood bank, or what they call now lifeblood, um, I'm a blood donor, so I get, I get messages all the time. They're also starting up a poo bank of healthy volunteers that they can then use to do these fecal transplants. I think there's a, a repository in Perth at the moment, but it might become national. They, rather than giving a blood donation, you can give a poo donation. And then they'll, they'll get the good microbes out of your gut, out of your poo, and use that as a... I'm not sure how to do it. I think they might go up the other end. The ideal way would be to make it into a pill. Mm. You put the good bugs in the pill, you swallow that pill, and in the gut it then opens up and releases the good bacteria. Man, I'd hate to be the person to extract that. <laughs> <laughs> Smelly business. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And yeah. man, whatever's in that pill. Yep. Yeah. I don't think you'll be eating poo. I hope not. You'll be eating the bacteria. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Been, and, and I think they're going to screen people to make sure they've got no other problems or no other viruses and stuff in their in their feces. Like if, if you've had like a past, let's just say rectal cancer or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they'll find people who are good donors mm. and they can use those people's bacteria as, as a therapy. Wow. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's interesting. How far we've come in terms of infections is quite fascinating. But then again, the future looks so bleak at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I'm an optimist. I mean, I've heard the stories of, um, you know, they're all going to take, they're all going to get us at the end, these microbes, and they probably will. Hopefully not. They were here before like we a... were here, and they'll probably outlast us, I'm sure. They'll probably end up hitching a ride to, the, to Mars or something and, you know, populating those mm. those worlds. Or there might be already microbes on those worlds. Mm. Who knows? Well, since I last spoke to you, I did end up watching The Last of Us. Oh, yes, that okay. Conversation and, okay. Yeah, that was, uh, I hope nothing like that happens. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. But there, yeah, we need to be just vigilant. Mm. These things are out there. The more we understand how they work and how how what we do affects them, hopefully, the better we are at managing that. It's a it's like anything. Nature is a balance. You disrupt the balance, things go wrong. Your gut is an environment. It's an ecosystem. You disrupt it, things go wrong. And I think personally, that's where fast food and healthy food comes into play the yeah, more definitely. junk you give your body i mean it hasn't got much to use to defend itself with whereas if you give it good lean meats yep. if you give it vegetables and yep. fruits and fiber the things it needs it'll work for you yeah we've, we've heard about the the probiotics there's also a whole lot of literature around what are called prebiotics these are things that we eat as part of our diet that are then good nutrients for the gut bacteria mm. so if you eat healthy prebiotic foods 
it helps to keep that nice balance of the diversity of your of your gut microbe. People who are unwell, they've been shown to have a very non-diverse gut microbe um, microbiome that tends to skew towards certain bacteria. Those who have a healthy environment have a very diverse range of bacteria. Diversity is everything. Mm. Professor Enzo Palombo, I thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. I wish we could talk for so much longer, but you do have a meeting in about 25 minutes. So I do, I do. I will let you go, but I'd thank love you, to talk again. And thank you for joining me on the it's podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.